No doubt, if we were just to stop for just a moment, I don't think it would actually take a moment, we could probably spend multiple hours if we were just to pause and just to reflect on how good God has been to each of us. No doubt, if we were just to take the time just to testify to the goodness of God and how he has blessed us, what he has done for us, you and I could go on for hours into the night. Not may not be a bad use of our time, actually. I think as I reflect about what that might look like, as I envision what that might look like as we as a church coming together, testifying to God's goodness to us, reflecting on what he has done, no doubt it would help us all gain a fuller grasp. It would remind us afresh how good and how wonderful and how merciful and ultimately who our God is. You know, we recently concluded a series at our church, and if you're new with us, you probably are not familiar with what we did, but we concluded a series called The Real God. We concluded this series called The Real God, and the reason why we went through this series was really kind of one-fold. It was really to understand who is God as he really is. The fact is, you and I might have all kinds of perceptions. We might have all kinds of ideas. Perhaps you walked in here with a certain understanding or idea about who God is, but God desires that you and I would understand him as he really is. Ultimately, as he reveals himself, not as we think he might be, not as we necessarily want him to be, but as scripture ultimately reveals himself. And what we learned going through that study was basically this. We learned that God is a good God. God is a good God. In other words, he's our heavenly father and he loves to give us good things. He loves loves to lavish us with many blessings, even as that song reminds us of. We learned also that God is a holy God, that he is perfect in all things, that he is unlike any other person or unlike any other thing in this world because of his holiness. We learned also that God is a loving God. Not only is he good, but he's also loving. He loves you. He deeply desires to be in relationship with you. He's a wise God, and he knows everything at all times. He is a sovereign God who is in control of all things, and ultimately, he is a faithful God. What does it mean to be a faithful God? To be a faithful God means that he will not give on up on us no matter what. That he will always come through no matter what. That he will always be there for you even when everyone else abandons you. That is what it means to be a faithful God. And when we see and understand more fully God as he really is, we not only get a better grasp of how amazing he is, not only do we get a better grasp of how huge and magnificent he is, but in turn, you and I are instilled with great reassurance that we can trust God. We can trust God's ways We can trust that whatever God promises to do, that he will, in fact, fulfill his promises. In fact, we see that the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus Christ in the form of a a little baby is really a testimony. It's 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 a promise fulfilled by God himself. Specifically in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that in the first two chapters alone that five different prophecies are fulfilled through the coming or the birth of Jesus Christ. 
In other words, even as Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the prophets. No, he says, I have not come to abolish or do away with those things. I've actually come to fulfill them. In other words, the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah, is the fulfillment of God's promise to you and to me. The coming of Christ is God's answer to our sin problem. The coming of Christ is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness to you and me. And as I said, we see even in the first couple chapters that God has fulfilled his promises through multiple prophets. Now, I don't know your background necessarily. I know some of you are IBC members. I know some of you are visiting, but yet you are a member of another church. Perhaps some of you are coming in here going, I don't really care or know much of anything, and that's okay. We're glad that you're here. But one thing you and I must understand or be reminded of when it comes to prophecy is this. Prophecy oftentimes has two understandings or has two uh, fulfillments. There is both a near fulfillment as as well as a far fulfillment. There is both a kind of a, an immediate fulfillment as well as a future, kind of long-term fulfillment. If we were to understand it in this way, it'd be like seeing a mountain range. I think we have a picture, perhaps. Do we have that picture? Okay, that's okay. No doubt, if you have hiked the Olympics, you realize that when you hike in the Olympics, sometimes there's a little haze and the mountain right in front of you is crystal clear. But then oftentimes, there's multiple ranges as you look back. And although you can see the silhouette of a mountain range, you can't quite see everything that clearly, but yet you know it's there. And prophecy oftentimes works in the same way. We see that there's there's an immediate fulfillment. The prophet is used by God to encourage, to exhort, to cause a great encouragement for the people of God to understand what God has to say. But at the same time, we also see that God uses that prophecy to predict a future fulfillment, ultimately, that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So, for example, we see in Matthew chapter 1, we see that when Mary is told that she is with child, even though she is still a, vir- a virgin, we see that that, that portrayal, that, that message that the angel gave to her is a fulfillment of prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 7. We see also another prophecy in, in Matthew chapter 2, where we see that when we see that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the same city that King, G- King David was also born in, we see that also was a fulfillment of prophecy out of Micah chapter 5. We see a third prophecy that also came to fulfillment as Matthew portrays. We see that an angel of the Lord warned Joseph and Mary to flee to Egypt because Herod wanted nothing to do with this Christ child. He wanted nothing to do with this baby that was also called King of the Jews. And so Herod was paranoid, as we learned even this past weekend. Herod is someone who actually killed multiple wives and multiple sons. Kind of a morbid guy, very paranoid, very eager to maintain control of his throne. And so he's eager to make sure that Jesus does not usurp his authority. And being warned in a dream, Moses and, and uh, excuse me, Joseph and Mary, they flee to Egypt only to fulfill the prophecy out of Hosea chapter 11. 
We see Hosea is actually prophesying to the, the people of Israel that God is going to deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians, but what he doesn't realize is that he's also, without even probably realizing it, that he's predicting that Jesus himself, the Savior of the world, God in human flesh, will come out of Egypt. And that's, in fact, what Jesus does. We see a fourth prophecy. This prophecy is actually very encouraging to me among, even though all of them are very encouraging. We see in in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17, that when Herod found out that the wise men did not return and tell them where the Christ child was, he killed every male child in Bethlehem, two years of age and younger. And no doubt, you can, you can assume the anguish. Know that you can assume that the heartache of mothers and fathers mourning the loss of their children. We see that Jeremiah himself actually laments this in Jeremiah chapter 31. When, he, when, he, when he's lamenting and mourning the loss and the, the, the tearing apart of families. You see, when the Babylonians came in, we see they came over into Judea, to Judah and took over and everybody was estranged from their land. Everybody was stripped from their families. Ch- children were taken away from their parents and vice versa. People were killed and slaughtered. It was a terrible, terrible time. And Jeremiah speaks to this and said, yes, this is cause for great mourning. This is cause for great sorrow, but... Even in that same prophecy, we see that he says there's great hope. Even in the process or even in the context of great mourning, there is also great hope. Why? Because Jeremiah reminds them that God has not forgotten them. Yes, you are sorrowful. Yes, you are hurting. Yes, you are full of pain, but God has not forgotten you. That is his message to the people of Israel. That is his message to you and to me. And this is exactly what the the gospel writer Matthew is seeking to convey to us. He's saying, you may be going through great heartache at this moment, You may be going through great struggle right now. No doubt even the Christmas holiday season is actually some of the the most difficult times for families. This is not something they anticipate. This is not something that maybe you right now have really longed for in a very long time. You may be struggling and hurting and weighed down by much pain. And God has a message for you. And he says... I have not forgotten you. He says, in fact, there is great hope even in the midst of pain. What is that hope? What is that promise of assurance that we see through the prophet Jeremiah, ultimately through the gospel writer Matthew? We see that a king is born. And he's just not any king. He's not just any baby boy. He's the savior of the world. We see that a king is born and we see that a conqueror is born, one that will make all things new, one who will heal every brokenhearted, one who will reconcile us to God. So yes, even in your pain, please understand that God has not forgotten you, that God still very much cares and he will conquer Fifth and finally, we see also that 
in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, that as Jesus returns from Egypt, he actually goes to this, this region called Galilee, specifically to Nazareth. Therefore, even in his life and ministry, we see that it's Jesus of Nazareth. But no, wasn't he Jesus of Bethlehem? Well, yes, technically, but he wanted to be associated with Nazareth because he wanted nothing to do with anything to do with Herod. You see, Herod had died. That's why they returned from Egypt. But his son, one of his sons, was actually just as wicked, just as ruthless. And so instead of returning back to where they came from, they went to the region, uh, to the place of Nazareth, only to affirm what the many prophets would prophesy. For example, in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Even Nathaniel says in John 1, verse 46, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not one of those uh, popular places. It would be what we call infamous It would not be something that you would brag about coming from. Nazareth was one of those places that you go, oh, you're from there. Yeah, nothing good comes from there. It's a bunch of riffraff. And yet, the God of the universe, the maker of all things, the king of the universe, the savior of the world, chose to be associated with with people such as those. You know what that tells you and me? It means that God includes you. It means that it includes you as well. And regardless of your background, regardless of your family tree, regardless of anything that you have, it means that God has not forgotten you. In fact, his salvation is given freely to you. So what are you and I to conclude? What are you and I to conclude about fulfillment of prophecy? What are you and I to walk away with as we understand that God is faithful to us, that he is faithful to his promises to us? I think there's a couple different things we can conclude. First of all, we can understand that God is true to his word. God is true to his word, that whatever God says will happen, it will, in fact, happen. We also see that God is in control of all things. That's what it means to be sovereign. That even though we make decisions every single day, and even though Herod and the wise men and so many different people made all their decisions, God was in absolute control to make sure that the Christ child would be born and raised and be the savior of the world. We see also that God is faithful to come through no matter what. We see even more so that God is is so loving and so compassionate toward you and me that he takes personal responsibility for our sin problem. You see, Jesus is God's answer to our sin problem. King Jesus is your answer to your sin problem. He is my answer to my sin problem. You see, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate reason that we are celebrating the birth of Jesus has nothing to do with anything other than the fact that a Savior has been born. In other words, you and I can't properly celebrate Christmas. You and I can't appropriately 
celebrate the coming of Jesus until we celebrate it through the lens of the cross. In other words, it is only through the lens of the cross that we can understand what in the world this season is all about in the first place. You and I have much reason to rejoice. You and I have great many reasons to rejoice. But the fact is, the one prominent reason I believe that you and I have to rejoice is that the Lord has come, God has come, a Savior has come, and he promises to make all things new. Joy to the world. What reason do you and I have to respond? What reason do you and I have to celebrate? That Jesus has come, that he has conquered, and he has provided a way to be in relationship with God.